Hi, and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. If you're enjoying the second chapter, remember to leave us a rating or review. It helps others to find us, and then they can enjoy it too. I'm back. I unexpectedly took a few weeks away working on one of my other chapters, producing and acting in the play Skin in the Game. I just wanted to say a huge thanks to everyone who sent well wishes and or supported the crowdfunder. You second chapter listeners are the best. So in this episode, I'm speaking with Alelia Bundles. Alelia is the great-great-granddaughter of African-American entrepreneur Madam C.J. Walker, whose story was the inspiration for the Netflix series Self-Made. Alelia's great-grandmother, Alelia Walker, was an icon of the Harlem Renaissance. But Alelia Bundles has spent her life finding her own ground. As an Emmy Award-winning network TV news producer and journalist, an author, and an activist, Alelia has written several books about her fascinating family and keeps their legacy alive as founder of the Madam Walker Family Archives and brand historian for MCJW, a line of hair care products inspired by Madam Walker. This is part one of two of our chat. When I went to work at NBC, there were, for the first time, a number of women producers and a number of African-American producers and people became bureau chiefs in the bureaus and were doing great stories. There was still a ceiling on who was going to be moved up to senior producer or executive producer. But it was a moment when the doors were opening and when things were possible. Hi, Lilia. Thank you so much for joining me. It's great to have you here. How are you? I'm great. I'm just really looking forward to this conversation. I was saying to you before, but I'm going to say it to all the listeners anyway. I'm nervous because you've worked with some of the best people in journalism. You've been one of the best yourself and to actually be talking to me. I hope I can live up to even a fraction of some of these people. (laughs) What what I love about this era is that podcasts just finally give everybody a chance to have a platform. And there's so many people who should have been on network television news long ago who weren't. And so now we're getting to, to get all the blossoming. So I love this. I love this era. Yeah, a lot of my regular listeners know that I've had many dreams, aspirations and careers. But one of them, the first thing I planned to study when I was in school was actually broadcast journalism, and I didn't. So this is my living out that dream through a podcast. So before we get to all of that, interestingly, I know you spent time growing up in Indianapolis, and I actually am from Cincinnati. So we have oh. a very close geographical connection from our youth. When did you leave Cincinnati? Uh, I left Cincinnati in 1999, it must have been, sometime around there. Yeah, because so. I went to University of Cincinnati and then headed to New York. A couple of my very closest friends were in Cincinnati. My best oldest friend lives in Cincinnati, Deborah Gentry Davis. We were born on the same day in the same year and have known each other since we were three. And she lives there. And one of my childhood babysitters, Manette Norris Cooper, was a vice mayor and a member of the city council. Cincinnati was, when you grew up in Indianapolis, there was no baseball team, no Kings Island, no jazz festival. So Cincinnati was the fun place to go. My grandma and uncle were in Indianapolis. So we always were going the other direction to go visit them. So definitely very familiar. Right. 
So one of the things I've been doing just starting this season is asking people that have had many different chapters, if you were to give the titles of the chapters of your life so far, what would they be? Listen, I took your assignment seriously. (laughs) I started writing down chapters and I thought, oh, and as a writer, I fretted, was this the right thing? But I'm just going, there's, I have 12. I'm just going to read them to you. By all means. Much loved, fortunate daughter, a writer discovers her passion, bridge builder, awakening, DJ, vagabond, family story slash roots, network, life after corporate America, free to speak my mind, facts matter, intentional legacy, and our stories are our power. So you should, you know, you shouldn't give me an assignment because I, I took it seriously. And I should have written every single one of those down because I was like, oh, I'm waiting for, I was born. And then no, beautiful writer titles. <laughs> so we already, we already talked about where we were from, where you're from. But as far as I like this kind of much loved, fortunate daughter. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? You know, I am so fortunate to have had the parents uh, that I had. My mother, Alelia May Perry Bundles, after whom I'm named, was Madam Walker's great-granddaughter. And when I was growing up, she was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. Mm-hmm. And very much an activist, very much an advocate of me and pushing me forward and wanting me to follow my own dreams. And my dad had worked for the Walker Company shortly after my parents were married, but then became president of another hair care, black hair care manufacturing company. And he had wanted to be a journalist when he was in college, one of the first black graduates of Indiana University's journalism school. But in the 50s, when he wanted to get a job, the white newspapers wouldn't hire him on the editorial side. They hired him on the business side. He ended up going into business. But after I had started working for the junior high school newspaper in in Indianapolis, I discovered that my dad had wanted to be a journalist. So my parents, rather than pushing me into what people would have considered the family business, they encouraged me to do my own thing. And that was journalism. So many people I talk to, one of the things was always, you know, either they were pushed into a family business or kind of pushed towards something a bit more traditional. As a woman, you should be a nurse or a teacher or a more traditional role. So it's interesting that you ended up following something that you wanted to do, but also was what your dad wanted to do and couldn't. But I didn't know that until after the fact. And I really... When I was eight years old, I wrote a little, I wrote a story about going to the moon. So it would have been 1960. So it was before the 1969, you know, walk on the moon. (laughs) And one of my mother's best friends, in fact, Manette Norris Cooper's mother was a school teacher and she read the essay and she sent it to a children's magazine and it was published. So at eight years old, I thought of myself as a writer. And that was my passion. I couldn't carry a tune, so I clearly was not going to be the best person in the choir. But when I got to junior high school in seventh grade, my science teacher asked us to fill out a five by eight card with our parents' name and phone number. I guess if we got in trouble, he would know how to reach them, (laughs) but also to write our hobbies. And I put writing and he said, you should try out for the school newspaper. And I 
did. I started working for the school newspaper and was ultimately was the editor in ninth grade. But for context, I always went to not just predominantly white schools, but overwhelmingly white schools. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this, but I had teachers who were really kind to me, who really pushed me. You know, I had some, yeah, obviously I had some negative situations, but mostly for the most part, teachers who really believed in me. And my junior high school newspaper advisor uh, was someone who really helped me become a journalist. That's pretty amazing, especially even knowing now politically what the Midwest of the United States can be. Right. We lived in a suburb of Indianapolis and, you know, Indianapolis, like most cities in America, North or South, was very segregated. But we moved into a newly built Black suburb that was surrounded by working class white uh, community and, and white folks started moving out. But we all went to a public high school, a suburban public high school that was one of the best in the state with really great teachers. And as I look back on it, I, I think the teachers for the most part were progressive. And so we really benefited from that. There was one guy who was a, an American Legion person who tried to get me expelled from school. Oh, but- <laughs> But he was the exception. Luckily. (laughs) So I was political even then. So I know from, I should say very publicly, that our connection comes from Melissa Davey, who did Beyond 60, the Beyond 60 Project film, which I've interviewed Melissa twice and love her so much and love the film. But I know from the film that you've remained political once you went to college. So I'm not sure what title that chapter was, what beautiful writer's title that was. Awakening. Awakening. So let's talk about your awakening, because obviously you had a bit of political awakening even as a youth, but what happened that was that awakening in school? I will say that because I was fortunate to be a really good student throughout school, that that made me have good relationships with my teachers. You really have to say I was a natural leader because I just moved into leadership roles, whether it was student council or uh, the school newspaper. So that was very fortunate for me. But in my, the last two years of high school, it was the late 1960s. Mm -hmm. America was very political. America was very polarized. And I was starting to feel some of the racism in America. And I had been elected vice president of student council, the first black girl to be vice president of student council in this 3,400, you know, 5% black school. (laughs) And that was the person I was. I got along with folks. I was a popular kid Mm -hmm. and all those kinds of things. But the day that I was elected to vice president of student council happened to be the same day that Martin Luther King was assassinated. Wow. So that evening, America exploded. And I learned later that there had been some white parents who had called the school who were quite upset about my election. Fortunately, I was protected from some of that by the student council advisor and by by other teachers. I didn't really feel the brunt of it, but I knew that was later knew that was going on. And then when I ran for president of student council the next year, there were some students in the audience who booed me. And mm-hmm. that had that kind of thing had never happened. And the um, guy who ran against me for president, you know, he was a, another popular guy, guy that I knew. But the vice principal, the principal, I'm sorry, the principal's son ran for vice president. He had not really been that involved in student leadership. So I was like the fix was in. And I could see <laughs> that there was some stuff 
going on. And I lost that election by a few Mm -hmm. votes. And so that really radicalized me. But I was also concerned about this polarization between Black and white students. And with another white friend of mine, we started the Human Relations Council because we wanted to find ways that people could get along. But I also started reading literature by Black writers. And Mm -hmm. I read W.E.B. Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk. And it was really the first thing I had ever read where I began to truly understand race and racism in America. And so I was approaching it from a very intellectual position, but it it was helping me understand the things that I hadn't been able to decipher before. And so by the time I got to college, there were more Black students in my classes than than had ever been there before. So I really became part of, fortunately, a really smart, really accomplished group of African-Americans at Harvard and Radcliffe and in the Boston area. And I didn't feel so out of place anymore, but it just gave me perspective on, you still, you, you need to be excellent as anybody if you want to be successful, but as an African-American, you have an extra dimension that you're always going to be battling. Yeah. And I think that's still true, unfortunately, today. As far as this awakening and this radicalization, as you said, I know another thing is that you tried to distance yourself a bit from your family connections. Being the great granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker became a thing that you didn't want to be as closely associated with. You know, absolutely. When I was growing up, my mother was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. So I would go with her to her office and play on her typewriter before computers (laughs) and her adding machine before calculators. And the silverware that we used every day had Madam Walker's monogram, CJW, on it. Our china had belonged to Madam Walker. And the baby grand piano, on which I learned to read music, had been Lelia Walker's piano. And a lot of famous musicians had played on that piano. So I knew that these this was my family. I knew that I had a connection. But, you know, as a kid, the last thing you want is for somebody to say, oh, you think you're this or that because... This is, you have this person as a relative. So I was so not interested in making it a big deal. And my mother, fortunately, was very wise about not making it a big deal because she had been singled out years later. I was in a cab in DC and the cab driver and I started talking and he said he had gone to Howard. I said, oh, my mother went to Howard. He said, what was her name? When was she there? And I said, Alelia Perry, she was there in the late 40s. He said, Alelia Perry, we used to see her walk across campus in her fur coat and go, money, money, money. (laughs) (laughs) So my mother, who was a very down-to-earth person, but clearly had known what it was like for people to view you in a particular way and make judgments, did not want me to experience the same thing. So did not make this a big deal. We did not sit around the dining room table talking about Madam Walker and our family. So she wanted me to discover it on my own. So I'm I'm very grateful for that. And I will say, just by distancing it, yes, this was my family. Yes, we had the silverware, these, the piano, and these other things that had belonged to them. But in the late 60s, of course, hair was an issue. Mm-hmm. And my dad was president of a company called Summit Laboratories that make chemical hair straighteners. And when I started taking swimming lessons, I got my hair straightened. And that was just the norm. If you were a Black girl or a Black woman during the, that period of time, you straightened your hair. Mm-hmm. But come the late 1960s, and afros are the thing. And I was feeling politically awakened and wanted an afro. And my father was 
totally against this. He said, who's going to pay your tuition if people stop getting perms? But my mother, again, who was the wiser one, though my dad was pretty wise about some things, but in this situation, she was the wiser one. Uh, And she took me to the Walker Beauty School where the students rolled my hair up on permanent wave rods and kinked my hair up and gave me this big afro. And I felt strong with this afro versus cute Mm -hmm. with the straight hair. And that was my an awakening and my sort of defiance of fitting into that mode. For many people, Madam Walker, mistakenly, many people believe that Madam Walker had invented the hot cum and that she was trying to make Black women look more European. And so that was what people thought of her. And I had internalized some of that. So the, the last thing I wanted to do was to be a part of that. And then my later research revealed to me that She had not invented the straightening comb, that really her products were to heal scalp disease with women Mm -hmm. who were suffering from scalp infections and going bald. So then I was able to make peace with her, especially after my intellectual hero, W.E.B. Du Bois, whose book, Souls of Black Folk, had been so uh, influential with me when I discovered his obituary of her in an August 1919 issue of his magazine, The Crisis, where he praised her. So then was a turning point where I began to say, if my intellectual hero thinks that Madam Walker was significant, I need to recalibrate here. I want to get back to Madam Walker in a bit, but you pursued the journalistic career and went on to work with, as I said, some of the greats, um, including yourself, obviously, but some of the greats in American news history, I guess I would have to say, Peter Jennings and Tom Brokaw. And these are the kind of faces and names that I certainly grew up with, but also a very white male other than maybe Connie Chung. And Carol Simpson. I was Carol's producer. I'm intrigued as to what it was like at that time period, being a Black woman in this situation. So I'm going to put another little step in between that gets me to that. This is the bridge. So when I began to recalibrate my views of Madam Walker, because I had been really much more interested in her daughter, Alelia Walker, and her life during the Harlem Renaissance, because she knew Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston and some of the writers I admired. So I was Mm -hmm. on that track. But when I got to Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism, pursuing this dream of journalism, My advisor for my master's paper was a woman named Phyllis Garland, who was the only Black woman on the faculty, the first tenured Black woman at Columbia at the journalism school. And Phil's mother had been an editor of the Pittsburgh Courier, which was a very famous Black weekly newspaper. And Phil had worked for Johnson Publishing, Jet and Ebony magazine. Mm -hmm. And when Phil and I met to talk about topics for my master's paper, I gave her some very cliched, (laughs) boring topics. (laughs) And at the end of the conversation, Phil said to me, your name is Alelia. Do you have any connection to Madam Walker and Alelia Walker? I I have to think Phil knew the answer to that because of her own background and the things that she knew. But Mm -hmm. I said, "Uh, yeah, that's my family. And she said, that's what you're going to write about. So it was really Phil during the fall of 1975 who validated this as a valuable and and significant topic for me. And that set me on a path that has been resulted in four books and almost five and Netflix series and uh, lots of other things. But it was really that moment 
that made me think that somebody else thought the story was important. So mm-hmm. then I graduated from Columbia and because I did not have a trust fund <laughs> from the Walker, there was no Walker fortune anymore. Why? <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to work as a management trainee, very junior producer at NBC News. And so then, so now we can get back to the, when I got, I, I graduated from Columbia in the spring of 1976. And that was a moment when women had sued Newsweek and a couple of the network news divisions because women were hired as researchers and secretaries Mm -hmm. and young men were hired as desk assistants and junior producers. And the women remained secretaries and researchers and the young men were put on the track to becoming executive producers, senior producers, and presidents of news divisions. So I benefited from those doors opening and from those losses. And then went on to become an executive producer and all of these things. And th- you know, and it was re- it was a very interesting moment. It was you know affirmative action at its best. And I know many people are like they hate the word affirmative action, but I certainly benefited from those doors opening up when I was admitted to college. There were more black women in my class at Radcliffe than had ever been there before. When I went to work at NBC, there were for the first time a number of women producers and a number of African-American producers and people became bureau chiefs in the bureaus and were doing great stories. There was still a ceiling on who was going to be moved up to senior producer or executive producer, but it was a moment when the doors were opening and when things were possible. And I was very fortunate. I went in the door as part of something called the Associates Program, where NBC had agreed to hire a few young African-Americans and put them on a management track. So when I got to NBC, NBC. I worked at at local radio, network television news, local television. And at the end of that first year, normally I would have moved into another position, but I was writers that the position that I had were in a union Mm -hmm. and the network was laying off 70 people. And as the newest member of that union, I had the least amount of seniority. But because I had been hired in this management track, I was given the option to move to Houston, a non-union bureau. Last thing in the world I wanted to do was leave New York to go to Houston with that I'd never thought about and had to look for it on the map. But it was the best thing that could have happened to me because it was such a small bureau. There was one other producer, two veteran cameramen, a great bureau chief, a great correspondent. And when I got there, I was basically an extra hand. I was very inexperienced, but they were so nice to me and they mentored me. So my bureau chief, Art Lord, was just like, okay, I'm going to give you the five minute lesson and then we're shooting you out the door. When there was no other producer but me, then I had to go do the grain elevator explosion. And the two cameramen who were just, they weren't that old. They were probably in their 40s. They were like old guys to me. But And they had been, they'd done civil rights movement. They'd done Vietnam. And they basically said to me, bundles, if you don't act like, you know, you know everything, we're happy to teach you. And so I, for three years, had a wonderful laboratory of learning in a way that I never would have learned if I'd been in New York, where you can only do a few things because there's so many other people ahead of you. So it was a great training ground for me. And then you moved 
back to New York after this? Actually, I moved to Atlanta. And this was one of those career crisis moments for me. I'd had these great guys, Art Lord, George Lewis, Don Critchfield, Henry Kokajan, Bernie <laughs> Lewis, Scott Berner, and they were the people who mentored me. But at the end of two years, George, Don, and Art were all assigned to other places, to London, to California. So they were gone and a new bureau chief came in. Mm-hmm. And this happened to be a guy who had been in Chicago, a former film editor who had been demoted because he had screwed up a major story. Ooh. And he was replaced by the first Black woman bureau chief in Chicago. So he was really not feeling me. <laughs> He'd been sent from a big bureau to a little bureau. I was his main producer. So I was miserable. And he would go off on his boat on the weekend and leave me in charge. You couldn't get in touch with him. It was a bad situation. We had bad chemistry. And I was from that moment, it was like, I've got to get out of there. My father is trying to tell me at this point, just hang in there and you can do it. And I'm like, daddy, I can't stand this anymore. But my dad coached me through that. And toward the end of that, of his several months into his tenure as bureau chief, NBC hired a new president of the news division, a guy named Bill Small, who had come from CBS. And Bill Small was making the rounds, visiting the bureaus. And I had been keeping in touch with people in New York. It wasn't easy to fly there, but every now and then I'd, before email, I would make a phone call to just say, I'm still here, help me. <laughs> but Bill Small visited the bureau and we talked and it was probably a 20 or 30 minute conversation. And I basically said, I've got to get out of here. But I said it in a much calmer way. Oh, these are my aspirations. Here's what I'd Please like to do. Something else. I'd like to, yes, I'd like some other opportunities. And I will tell you three weeks later, I was on my way to Atlanta. Oh, wow. It was an opening. You were heard. Yes, I was heard. I was heard. So then I moved to Atlanta and that was great. I was there for five years. I had a great bureau chief, worked with really great people. And then I got an assignment to work on Jesse Jackson's campaign in 1984. A lot of Black folks were assigned to that campaign because I think the news divisions thought that Jesse would spill the beans to... (laughs) to the Black reporters, (laughs) you know, which he didn't really do. But there was this amazing conglomeration of talent of the folks, you know, my cohort of people who had come into journalism, New York Times, Newsweek, Time Magazine, ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS. And we were there. We were just sort of a merry band of journalists on the plane for those 10 months, 11 months. Mm-hmm. And so that was, as they say, you get your ticket punch. Doing a campaign was a way to get a ticket punch in network television news. So at the end of that period of time where I worked really hard, then I was, my profile had been raised a bit. And then I moved to Washington, D.C. to work on one of the magazine shows. So I had this great trajectory. I came in, in in a management training program. They were very serious about trying to put people in the pipeline, put women and African-Americans and people of color in the pipeline. I did my bureau time in Houston and Atlanta. That's really not as available to young people now because most of the networks, they don't have bureaus in the same way, but that was a great training ground. And you prove yourself and then you get to move up to the next level. So I came along during a period of time when the only three networks and PBS. They had a lot of money to spend and you had a lot of opportunity. 
And you were you started at NBC and ended up at ABC? That's right. So I was at NBC from 1976 to 1989 in New York, Houston, Atlanta, and D.C. And then I switched over to ABC in 1989 and went to work with with World News Tonight. You know, and this is another one that things just happen. You don't, you know, how do you make the decisions about where you're going to go? When I was making the decision to go to NBC, I mean, this is one of those, it was just kind of serendipity or chance. But when I finished the J School at Columbia, I had two offers. One was Washington Post for a summer internship in a really great program. And the other was NBC for one year in a management training program. Now, the one year was attractive. I was already in New York. But the other piece is that at the time, my boyfriend at the time lived in Washington. So I was weighing New York, Washington, but he was not saying what I wanted to hear. And so I'm like, okay, well, that I'm putting that over here and I'm going to stay in New York and it's for a year. So that was you know, the road not taken because I could have been at the Washington Post or a, a print journalist, but I ended up in network television news. Then at what, once I got to Washington and was working with NBC and really enjoying my job as a, a magazine producer, because you got three months to do a story that never <laughs> happens anymore. And I was working with great people, but NBC before Dateline had a dozen failed magazine shows. <laughs> So I worked on two <laughs> that didn't make it. And at the end of that period, the show was going off the air. And so what was I going to do? But I bumped up against a union issue again because the producers in Washington were in a union. But the magazine, the network had been able to carve out an exception for magazine producers in Washington. And we were not in the union. So now I was faced with I'm got going back to the bottom of the seniority, even though I'd had more than a decade working. And mm -hmm. so I began to talk to other places. And a good friend of mine was Ray Nunn was the senior producer at ABC. And he connected me with their recruitment person. And I danced back and forth. And then I just thought, I don't want to be at the bottom of the seniority level again. And ABC was, a, was actively recruiting. And so I switched over. And was it at ABC that it was Emmy Award winning producing or both or where were the Emmys? So, <laughs> Talk to me about the prize. You know, you know, <laughs> the, the Emmy is it's a funny thing about that. So the Emmy that I got was actually at NBC and it was for a program about Ronald Reagan, a topic that I had no interest in. But NBC <laughs> had made a commitment to do the last 24 hours of Reagan in the White House. Mm -hmm. But there were some pieces that were set pieces, and I worked on the piece on his legacy in the military. And because of that effort of the turnaround in 24 hours, NBC got an Emmy. So I was part of a team that got an Emmy. And I've heard people say that sometimes these awards are for things that aren't really your favorite pieces. I would say that I had some other awards, White House press photographers, uh, I was part of a team that did uh, a piece on one of the first major pieces on in vitro fertilization and mm. another piece on Defusky Island, one of the sea islands near Hilton Head, where that where African-American communities that were being gentrified and turned into golf courses. So those were two pieces that I particularly was proud of when I was at NBC. When I got to ABC, I got a DuPont Award, again, as part of a team that focused on women and health. 
So I was very proud of that. You know, the idea of working with some really talented people. I was Carol Simpson's producer on World News Tonight. I, I worked with great camera crews and uh, editors. So I, I just, I feel that there was, there was a team effort that goes into network television news. Things have changed a lot because then you had a correspondent, a producer, a two-person camera crew, a video editor, and you really worked as a team. Now it's it's much more the correspondent shoots all the stuff that you might have two people working on something. You may edit your own work, but it was really a great collaboration during the period of time when I was there. But I was Carol's, I was Carol Simpson's producer on World News Tonight. I worked with other correspondents, but primarily with Carol. I worked with Peter on a few pieces. He would he did something called Person of the Week. And it was always, he had his regular producer, but when that person would go on vacation, then he would get plucked to do a story with Peter. And I did a, a couple and felt really good about, about that experience. So is the family history going through all of this? Or was it put aside and then suddenly there was a moment that you were like, I need to change or I'm going to do something different? It was always there. And I will say both NBC and ABC accommodated my um, desire to do other things. So when I was at NBC, and, and actually there are moments when I was frustrated, either I wasn't moving fast enough, things weren't going well, and, and rather than blow up and storm out of the door. I asked for leaves of absence. So when I was in Atlanta, Alex Haley actually approached us, my family, mm -hmm. and he was still riding the crest of roots. And he came to us and said he wanted to do a mini series and a book, a fictionalized book about Madam Walker. And I w was in New York with two other people who, you know, who were related to Madam Walker's attorney. We had dinner on Columbus Avenue. I remember this dinner. And during the dinner, Alex said, I'm going to hire six researchers and we'll blanket this. And, we'll, and I said, excuse me, Mr. Haley, I wrote my master's paper <laughs> at Columbia <laughs> about Madam Walker. And I have all these letters and I'd be happy to do the research. And so I became his researcher. And I took a what started as a three-month leave of absence turned into a nine-month leave of absence from my mm -hmm. job as a producer. And when I look back on that, I'm like, wow, they were that was really extraordinary that, that I was able to do that. But that gave me the foundation for the research. And Alex never finished writing a book. And in some ways, I think that was the way the universe wanted it to be. I finished writing my young adult biography on Madam Walker on a freighter trip with Alex. That's where he would write when he was under the gun and not meeting his deadlines. But I finished writing that book. So that came out in 91. Alex died in 92. And then it took another you know, decade for me to actually publish the book. But because of Alex, what Alex was so wonderful about including me and using my research. And we had two meetings on his farm in outside of Knoxville, Tennessee with Mark Walper and Reuben Cannon, who had done the casting for Roots. And Alex had allowed me to invite two 
researchers to come down, two historians to come down. So we talked about what we would do and the grand plans. And on one of those weekends, I shared a cabin with Lisa Drew, who was Alex's editor on Roots, and we shared a cabin so that when I was ready to write a book and had a book proposal, my agent took it to several different people, but we ended up with Lisa because Lisa had already knew the story because Alex had talked about it so much. So all along the way, I was at NBC. I took a leave of absence, nine months to do some research for Alex. My young adult book came out in 91. It was really the first biography on Madam Walker. Alex died in 92 without finishing the book. But then it took me another several years so that my book On Her Own Ground came out in 2001. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join me next week for the second half of my chat with the amazing Alelia Bundles and details about season five of the Second Chapter podcast coming to you in 2022, which I can't believe is almost here. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode and follow us on the Second Chapter podcast on Instagram. See you soon. Thanks again for listening. The Second Chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.